Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. This is going to be fun today. I'm going to have my head like on a swivel going from right to left over here. This will be good. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time today. Uh, we'll bounce around a couple of other spots and cross-referencing Luke 2, but primarily that's where we're going to be and really where we're going to settle in probably over the next couple of weeks um, as it is the story of Jesus' birth. And so uh, we are in um, Advent and uh, right in the middle of Advent now. And so we're in the, also just in the thick of the Christmas season. If you're anything like me, then you probably, uh, normally if you're anything like me, you haven't gotten started yet on any of the shopping for Christmas. But uh, fortunately, I kind of got ahead of things a little bit this year. And maybe I'm just trying to just finish 2020 well. So I'm trying to like, you know, do better than what I usually do at this point in the season. But um, anyways, we're in, uh, we're in the thick of it. And so we're in the middle of Advent. And, and what we've covered so far is really spending the first week looking at just the assurances of a Savior. And so as Advent is, is literally just a term that means to wait um, or to long for something to come. Uh, we wanted to look at how do you do that well? How do you long for something um, from a biblical perspective? And the way that we long with hope is knowing that God in His promises has answered all of them when it comes to an Old Testament perspective looking forward to Jesus' birth um, in the New Testament. And so there were 456 prophecies about the birth and person and work of Jesus Christ that were prophesied from the Old Testament looking forward to the person of Jesus. And so we kind of dove in a little bit to what does that, uh, what does that mean, 456 prophecies, and, and how much is it worth for even one of those prophecies uh, to actually come true. And so when, once you kind of start looking at the statistics of him fulfilling one prophecy and eight prophecies and uh, 48 prophecies, like you, you quickly realize that it's nearly impossible for anybody, one to do one prophecy, much less eight or 48, or as we actually see in the Old Testament, 456 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so with that, it actually provides for us not a hope like what typically our culture views hope. Like whenever we say, I hope I get this, or I hope this happens in my work, or I hope this happens in my family, Usually that's just kind of like a blind um, hope or a blind energy or a blind um, kind of angst that I really hope this works out, but I have nothing to, to base it on. Uh, so it's, it's really kind of a, uh, just, a, just an empty hope, where hope in the Bible is an assurance that something is guaranteed to happen because God says it will happen, and he essentially swears by his name that it will happen, and then he continues to um, execute what he wanted to ultimately accomplish. And so when he provides for us hope, he's not only providing for us, hey, believe in what I'm saying, but he's also showing us where he actually executed that, where he actually came through on his promise. And so Jesus Christ alone, the person of Jesus Christ, the historical figure 2,000 years ago, 
actually fulfilled over 456 prophecies of the Old Testament that were promises that the people were to hope in. And so now when he provides us promises, as we'll see today in the coming weeks, that the hope is, 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 is a little bit more substance to it than what we typically do in our culture. There's more anchor um, to the hope that we have in Christ than just hoping things will work out. And that's why faith, when it comes into the picture, is an assurance of things hoped for, as we see in Hebrews 11. One, is that there's more to it than just blind trust. That we actually can take whatever Jesus says and find that all those promises find their yes, they find their substance, they find their hope ultimately in Jesus because we know He never lies. We know that He ultimately perfects everything that He sets out to do. And so that was week one. We wanted to look at kind of the assurances of hope in a season where we're waiting and longing for something to happen. And then last week, what we actually looked at were the adversaries of a Savior, the adversaries of Jesus. What goes on during this season that tries to rob us of the joy that is to be had in the waiting period? And really what we kind of pointed to there was Ecclesiastes 3, uh, speaks of this, this eternity that God placed within our hearts. That when He created us, when He designed us, He put eternity on our hearts. And the reason why He did that was because He knew that creation is going to promise us all kinds of things that are going to try to fulfill that longing within our soul, that eternity within our soul. But because it's created, because it's temporary, and because it's not Christ. It's never going to uh, meet the end of its contract. It's never going to fulfill in us what it sets out to do. And that's why it's, again, important that in this season, you are just bombarded with marketing that what you need is more of what you already have. That the current phone that you have is not enough, and so you need to go get another phone. That the vehicle you have is not enough, and so you need to get the Lexus with the bow on it out in the driveway. And that's what you need that's going to finally satisfy your life. Or what you need is Botox, or what you need is a new gym membership, or what you need is fill in the blank. And this is what you're literally being bombarded with right now. And our kids are full in. I mean, they're all chips in. Every single commercial that comes on is, I want that toy, or I want this, or I want that. This will make me happy. And we're just like, yeah, maybe, maybe. Like, part of me is kind of like God in Romans 1, where he's like, just hand them over to it so that you can see that it just ends in destruction, and then maybe they'll learn, and we'll provide the gospel on the back end. Maybe that's bad parenting advice, but we'll see how it goes uh, for us. But we kind of talked about just the adversaries of Jesus and that what we want you to do in this season is, is just play the part. Like we're not saying be anti-Christmas. We're not saying be anti-gifts and presents. But what we are saying is just don't put all of your hope in those things to satisfy your life at the stage of life that you're in right now. Like you're, you're, if you put all your weight on getting the new vehicle or getting the right present or even outside of the materialistic things, even the weight that you put on family coming into town or going out of town to be with family or uh, socially distancing from family and you're trying to do it via Zoom or whatever it looks like. If you're, if you're trying to go that route and putting the weight that family's going to satisfy you or that traditions are going to satisfy you or that having the right tree is going to satisfy you, if you're putting your hope there, at the end of the day, what we're saying is it's just not going to work. It's just not meant to work in that regard. 
And so what Jesus is saying to us is he is the one that comes to fill the whole of eternity within our hearts. And so we want to keep our minds there as we're walking through this season so that you get Christ and you then get to also still enjoy to a certain extent the creation. You get to enjoy the trinkets and toys and the traditions and the trees and you get to enjoy those things, but you've rightly placed them and stewarded them where they should be not being the thing to satisfy you, but the thing that you enjoy, because we do know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so God is not anti-fun, and He's not anti-enjoyment, He's not anti-those things to provide for us. He does make provision for us in that realm. It's just we don't look for those things to be our Savior, but rather we look for Christ to be our Savior. And so that's what we talked about last week, and, and it was actually interesting, like, I know I went on my rant regarding the, the new smartphone that folds, and um, some people didn't really believe that I used to have the, you know, the flip phone with the broken spring, so it was a flop phone, really. Um, but I think it was Tim, Tim Moran, he, he texted me an image of a, it's, I think it's called the Lenovo ThinkPad X1, and it's like an app, iPad that essentially folds. And on the front, uh, literally just in bright letters, it, letters, it says, uh, reshape your reality reshape your reality. And again, this is what I'm drawing in. This is what marketing is doing in this season, is it's literally telling you the same thing. Your life stinks. Your reality stinks. And so to reshape your reality, what will solve your issue is just getting this think pad that folds. And so what I want you to do, just kind of homework, is in the coming weeks, I want you to look for marketing ploys that try to provide for you this salvific experience that this is going to change your life or this is going to transcend your reality or this is going to reshape your reality. If you see anything out there like that, uh, write it down or take a screenshot and text it to me because I just want us to be aware of what culture is trying to communicate during this season that, again, is not going to hold up. It's not going to work for us in the end. You're going to wake up on December 26th and still fill that void if that's what you're looking for. But if Christ is in you and you're seeing that, then when you wake up on December 26, you're going to have the same fulfillment and the same satisfaction and the same peace in this season and contentment in this season, regardless of whether or not you got the presence that you actually asked for. Because you know you have Christ and Him alone. And so that's what we looked at last week. And so what we're diving into uh, this week is specifically looking at um, the agents of Christ. The agents of Christ or the agents of a Savior. And I'm not referring to like insurance agents. I'm not referring to kind of like Jesus needing the, the guy on State Farm to represent him. during. Like he doesn't need a discount double check. Like that's not what we mean by the agents of Jesus. Um, but rather what we're referring to are the agents or the people that God employs into his story of revealing Christ and bringing Christ. Because again, if you're, if you're writing the novel, if you're writing the story of the Savior coming to the world, and if you're writing the story of the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming to the world, being incarnate, being Emmanuel, God with us, 
If you're going to write that story, you're going to write it completely differently than how God writes it and how he employs it and how he brings in the characters that he brings in. Because again, we're going to see them as not the characters that you would have thought the God of the universe and the Savior of the world would have employed in order to bring about his plan, his will, and his redemption. And and I think it's truly a beautiful story because again, it goes contrary uh, to, it's countercultural. To first, especially first century Jerusalem and first century Bethlehem and Nazareth, these are not the people that you would have picked to be on your kickball team. Like it's just not the ones that you would have said, that person's gonna do this the right way. That person's gonna nail this proclamation. Like that person's gonna make sure that Jesus is born into um, a, a safe environment. These are not the people that you would have employed. And, and at the end of the day, what I want you to get out of that is, is, Again, we're driving hope here. Like we're, we're driving this sense of, of building your faith to see that if God would use them, then absolutely He would use you. Absolutely He would employ you in His plan because oftentimes we think we're just not, and, and I'm going to be careful with my words here, we think we're not good enough, worthy enough uh, to be on God's team or to be used by God in a certain way. And, and you're going to see kind of in an interesting way, how I'm going to assure you that you're somewhat good enough because you're actually bad enough for him to use you. And so I'll kind of explain that here in a minute. Yeah, it's going to be encouraging, even though it's going to feel like it's not a promise. But this is how God operates. This is how he works. Is anytime he wants to move, he grabs someone and he uses them to execute his plans. We've seen this throughout the entire Old Testament. You take Moses, for example, and if you start reading through um, the Exodus and you've got God coming to Moses and he's saying, I have heard the cries of my people and I know that they are in anguish and I know that they are in bondage and slavery. And God is telling Moses through the burning bush on the mountain, if you have a church background and know the story, as he's telling them, he says, I'm going to deliver my people. And if I was Moses there on that mountain, when I'm hearing God speak to me in this way, I would be like, okay, then why are you talking to me? Like, if you're going to be the one to go deliver your people, then why am I here? And what do we know? God then says, the way in which I'm going to deliver my people is by sending you to go to Pharaoh and ultimately deliver the people out. And so God always grabs somebody in order to execute his plan and his will. He did this with Jeremiah. He did this with David. He did this with even into the New Testament as we look at some characters there, like John the Baptist. I mean, he was not a guy who went into the city and became a prominent figure. No, he went out to the wilderness in order to prepare the way for God like, or for Jesus to come onto the scene. Even uh, when you get to the early church and the first leaders of the church, you did not have the people who were the highest educated or who had the most money or who had the most prominence within the area like he went to the uneducated men in order to pull them together and say you're going to be my disciples I'm going to send you out even the kind of next generation of leaders when you got like Paul going to Timothy Paul had to tell Timothy time and time again like first Timothy 4:12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young But I want you to set an example for the believers in faith and in life and in speech and in purity. So he's telling Timothy, who Timothy is constantly second-guessing himself, can I do this? Can I do this? Yes. 
God has qualified you, even though you think you're unqualified, to be able to execute this ministry that I need you to do. And then Timothy becomes one of the elders and pastors at one of the greatest churches that has existed, the church in Ephesus. And so time after time again, he employs those who we would not look at and think, I would hire them on my team. I would put them on my team. And so I want you to see this as we begin kind of walking through the narrative of Jesus's birth. So Luke chapter 2, I'm going to start off in verse 1 here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. First of all, I just want to point out that this story is a true story. And the reason why I say that is because I think uh, there has kind of been this numbness that our culture has created around this narrative of the birth in a manger, the birth of Jesus. It's, it's actually kind of weird that it's been so um, publicized mainstream that in some ways it actually becomes more like a fictional story than it is an actual true event that happened. And so you see this because of books that have been written and children's books that have been written or story, uh, movies that have been made regarding this. I mean, we just watched a movie uh, just a couple of weeks ago called The Star that is uh, an animated movie that's kind of conjecture around the story of Jesus being born. Um, and so you, you got all these different narratives and stories that are proclaiming this message to where it can actually numb us to the point that this was a true factual event. Like there are a lot of other you know, mythological stories and, and stories that are created and even parables in the Bible that aren't necessarily true events, that are parables, that are like Jesus just telling a story to where sometimes people lump this one into those as if it was something that necessarily didn't actually happen. But what you can do even outside the Bible is you can look at historical evidence, you can look at historical books, you can look at historical authors who fact-check this narrative to, to, to an event that actually happened. Like the characters that we're reading here are legit characters. Caesar Augustus, legit guy. This first registration that went out, this first census, is actually like documented in history. It actually happened. Them traveling from Nazareth and from Galilee to, um, to Bethlehem actually happened. Literally everybody flocking to this area, which we'll get to here in a minute of why there was no room in the inn, but all of this was an actual event. So we're not just reading a story to feel good about it. We're reading a story that is true. That this is the truth. This is God telling us through, uh, through the, the, the author Luke here and also the author Matthew, recording for us actual eye testimony events. And so I just want to point that out just to remind us that, again, this isn't just a fun story to read around Christmas time, but is actually true. 
And so a couple of things I want to point out here regarding the agents of a Savior. Again, if you're handpicking these, you're not going to look at Mary and Joseph. You're not going to pick them to be the parents of a Savior. You're just not. Because Joseph is a common man. He's a common man who's a carpenter in, the, in his day and age. And so you think blue collar, like he's, he's not someone who's uh, going to be well educated. He's not someone who's going to have prominence or um, status within the people around him. Like he's going to be essentially a nobody. So much so that even after Jesus is born and you get all the talk about Jesus and you get all the, the, the fear that's falling on Herod and, and the, the government there and the Pharisees and Sadducees, outside of the birth of Jesus and outside of their next trip when he's 12 years old to the temple, we know nothing of Joseph. We know nothing of Joseph. And he is, for all intents and purposes, the adopted father of Jesus Christ, yet is still a nobody. Still a nobody. And then we have Mary, who at best is a servant girl. At best is a servant girl. So she has no... Literally, in first century, when you look at the women of first century, um, especially in Judaism, they're, they're essentially considered property. Property. They have no weight when it comes to uh, voting in, in, in um, elections. They have no uh, opportunity to really own property. I mean, like it's the, the type of, of honor is non-existent when it comes to women in this culture. And so again, if you're, if you're going to go the route, you would probably try to go the route of maybe a, a woman who owns her own business, um, or maybe someone who has a little bit more stature or is well-known amongst uh, her community or is just seen as kind of like the, the Proverbs 31 type woman. And again, you would not point out Mary in this regard. Another thing that we know from them is the fact that they are betrothed. And so that is um, the best way I can describe it because we don't really have this type of language in our current day and age. Uh, it's somewhere between engaged and being fully unmarried, all right? Because they had a little bit more weight in their engagement during this time than what we do now. And so with them, like they actually had to go and get legal documents to be engaged that would actually bind them to one another even before the actual marriage ceremony. And because we have kids in here, the consummation, all right? And so um, there's, there's, there's some things that need to happen for it to be fully sealed. Uh, but then at the same time, it's not just an engagement that's like a verbal, I will marry you one day. There's actually a legal binding agreement between the two of them. And I want you to see this here in a minute because, again, there's some wrestling that happens between Joseph and Mary around this birth. And that I want to show you this because, again, these are humans. Like these are humans that are at play here. And so uh, if you will, turn over with me to Matthew chapter 1. This is the other narrative, um, kind of parallel passage with Luke 2 regarding the birth of Jesus. And this actually provides us a little bit more detail into what's going on in Joseph's mind during this time. Because Luke 2 actually is a little bit more in Mary's perspective, as we'll see towards the end, where it talks about her treasuring all of these things within her heart. But in Matthew 1... Verse 18, this is what it says. Again, real people with real reactions regarding this story, this narrative. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, consummation, all right, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, again, referring to, like this is the legal binding here, already referring to him as husband, even though they have not come together um, as one yet. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So that would be breaking the binding contract that they already have entered into from the engagement, saying that they will eventually get married. So this was, again, a legal process. And Joseph was actually, again, uh, just to actually break contract before they get married by divorcing her, which is, again, again just separating this contract that they have, uh, this legal binding contract separating her because of the illusion or the assumption that she had had relations with someone else. She's found to be with child, so it would actually be okay for him to break things off at this point. So at this point, this is what he's wrestling with. He's received news from her that, hey, I am with child, and he's battling this. I mean, he's struggling in his mind what to do. And because, again, this, I think this shows a little bit more of the respect of Joseph. And as I kind of share here in a minute why I think he is a man who is, who is just. Um, but it shows a little bit more about his character and his integrity and why God would, again, kind of bring about Joseph and Mary to be his earthly parents. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And so when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, which again, consumption, consummation. That's the word I was looking for. I mean, I'm not going to go. Knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, so thankful that we have Joseph as, again, just this example because he comes from a lifestyle that you would not expect for him to be considered a just and righteous man, a carpenter. But again, he is from the lineage of David. And so one of the things that we can kind of glean from this is that, again, family discipleship, family discipleship is so important Because for him to come from the lineage of David means that he is going to have access to hundreds of years of passing down of great-great-great-great-grandfather David and great-great-great-great-grandfather Solomon who have written out documents which become their holy scriptures of the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, these documents that were written regarding the nature and character of God. Because you got to remember something here. 
At this point, God has been silent for 430 years in proclaiming or providing a word through any prophet or any person. So when these angels show up on the scene and speak to Mary, and these angels show up on the scene and speak to Joseph in a dream, and when they show up here in a moment speaking to some shepherds in a field, this is the first time God is breaking the silence for over 400 years. So how is Joseph considered a just man? The only thing possible that we would understand from that is that family lineage has done its part in actually imparting from one generation to the next. This is who God is. This is who we serve. This is the God of David who has uh, rescued him from the mouths of lions and from bears and who rescued him from uh, Goliath and who has done all of those things. The same God who was the God of Solomon that provided all of his splendor, who also took away all of his splendor. This is the same God who we are hoping in that when an angel appears, they're able to then acquaint this angel with the God that they serve. And so like kind of one of the challenges that I want to put out there is family legacy, family discipleship. And I know we hit on that a few weeks ago, but family legacy, family discipleship, is it being done with such intentionality that your children, as they get older and have their children, and as they get older and have their children, as they get older and have their children, are able to pass down the treasure of Jesus Christ. That if there, were, there, there, there was nothing else spoken or nothing else proclaimed, just via family discipleship, they're able to pass down the seed of God's Word within them so that their family is covered, and then their family is covered, and their family is covered. It's so, so important. Now, going back to Luke, 7, Luke 2, verse 7, I want you to see that even though Joseph is a just man, and even though Mary has found favor with God to carry his child, that doesn't change the fact that these two have no wealth, no privilege, and no power. And the reason why we know this is because first century Jewish culture is a high honor culture. It's a high honor culture. They honor one another based on their position and based on their prominence. And so what this means is like if you're uh, based on your position, prominence, or status, when you come into, let's say, a wedding feast or a wedding banquet, it's typical for people to not necessarily have like place cards on their seats, like where they're supposed to sit, like what we do in our current day and age but rather for them to come sit at the ends of the tables and from there have whoever's hosting the banquet to then draw them up or elevate them to the places of their status or the places of their prominence. Like it's much better for you to be brought up or than for you to walk into a banquet, sit down next to the person on the throne, and then them to say, what are you doing? Like you don't belong here. You need to kind of bump yourself down to the end of the table. So this is a high honor culture where they elevate one another. They bring one another up based on status, prominence, and, and just kind of their cultural norms. And so the reason why we know that uh, Joseph and Mary had no wealth, no privilege, no status, is that when they get into Bethlehem, nobody's getting bumped from their place. And there's even some kind of arguments on there that is this 
Is this inn like a hotel? Like, is this, you know, the Bethlehem Hotel 8 or something? Or like, what are they trying to stay in? And, and, and the actual word in the original language is, is really just an upper room kind of um, context. And so this could be the upper room of a type of inn or hotel, or this could just be the upper room of a house that has no space in it. But the reality is, is again, whoever's in that house is seen with more privilege and status and honor then Joseph and Mary, to the point to where they're not getting kicked out to the barn in order for Joseph and Mary to come up to their place. And so what we're seeing here is, again, Joseph and Mary are getting picked last on the kickball team. Like, that's just the reality. All right? They're, they're coming into Bethlehem, and whether they went door to door or not, people always kind of throw out that conjecture. They, they went everywhere and couldn't find anywhere to stay. Regardless, wherever they ended up, we know they were lowest on the totem pole. And that's important. That's important for us to understand. I'll see that here in a second. The next thing I want you to see is a couple of other characters that God brings into this picture. Starting in verse 8 of Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And that's important. That, that's going to draw a lot um, out of this passage. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the, eight, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. So the irony here is that we'll see these shepherds with no name given to them. All right, just all we have are just some shepherds. One of the things that's customary, again, in this culture, in this tradition, and we still do it here today, we just do it ourselves via Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. But there's always a, a pronouncement of a child to be born. And so you typically hire a herald. You're going to hire someone who's going to get the news out because especially with a firstborn child, you're proud. And even more than that, not only a firstborn child, but a firstborn male, because again, in this culture, that is the heir. That is the one who's going to take over everything that we have built and established as a family. Like the, You're looking at this as though the lineage and the name is in contact. Like it's, it's going to, to remain in existence. And so it's a big deal. 
What you're not going to do in the first century is go to the shepherds to be your heralds. You're not going to, I mean, it's, this is outside of their wheelhouse, all right? This, this would be like trying to, to hire me to do our communications, even though I have a communications degree. It does not work well, because that's just not the way that I operate when it comes to actually getting the word out. Now, I will preach and proclaim and be a public speaker in, in certain aspects, and that's kind of more my wheelhouse. But when it comes to just getting the news across, like, I'm terrible at that. You can ask my wife. Like, it's, I just fumble through stuff all the time or don't give the right amount of details or I miss out on certain things. And, and it's just true. I just know myself, right? That's the way it is. The shepherds are going to be way worse than this. Like, they don't even hang out with people. They just hang out with sheep. And sheep are just considered dumb. I mean, like, it's a, so they're not even like with horses or like anything that's like of a stately value. Like, they're, they're with sheep. They're with the lowest of the low when it comes to work and trade. So much so are they considered the lowest of the totem pole that in the first century, shepherds were considered outcasts. And here's the thing we know about outcasts. Like, if you're considered that, especially in a culture, over and over and over again, and people are just viewing it, viewing you in that way, eventually you just give yourself over to that lifestyle. You just give yourself over to this idea that, yeah, I am an outcast. All right, so I'm going to give myself over to that. And so it's actually very cultural um, and, and normative for first century shepherds to just be considered thieves. That as they're kind of just going around Jerusalem, going around Bethlehem, going around Nazareth, whatever it is, doing their shepherding, it was nothing for, and especially, it's, it's actually, again, kind of going into this, it's weird for them to be shepherding at nighttime, all right? Let's get the sheep awake. Let's get them walking around. There's no reason to be shepherding at nighttime, all right? And so for them to be going around, more than likely, again, giving themselves over to this lifestyle of outcasts, they're probably doing some dirty deeds during this time. And so to have an angel of the Lord appear to them out of the sky, absolutely they're going to be in fear and trembling. Because they're caught. They're caught in their lifestyle. They're caught as outcasts. And so for them to hear, the first thing out of this angel's mouth is do not fear. Do not fear. It kind of reminds me again of just the consistency of Jesus coming to sinners and saying, whoa, 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 do not fear. I've not come to condemn you. I've come to save you. This is important because, again, of who he's pursuing and what we see in the consistencies of Jesus's ministry, that he didn't just hang out with those of prominent stature, Pharisees and Sadducees, but that he dined with sinners and tax collectors. God's M.O. is the same when it comes to Jesus' birth. That he's not going after, even though Joseph is in the, in the lineage of David, which is a prominent lineage, 400 years have gone by to where people don't even care anymore. That they're looking for the Savior to come from probably one of the Pharisees or Sadducees' family lines. And so for him to come through this form, again, is God being God, and doing something to where God would be the only one to get the credit for rather than humanity. He wants, at the end of the day, for us not to boast in anything that we do ourselves, 
but rather to show up on the scene and to grab the lowest of the lows. Let me find those who have no wealth, prominent or stature or figure, and let me grab them, Mary and Joseph, who are just and have found favor with the Lord. They're humble. Let me grab them and bring them in. You're going to play a part in bringing my son Jesus Christ into this world. All right, now let me look out. Who, who's the most unqualified to herald the news of Jesus Christ? Let me go get these shepherds. Let me go get these shepherds and proclaim to them glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. It matters more who God is pleased with rather than who man is pleased with when it comes to heralding the news of Jesus Christ. And it was pleasing to God to grab those who were not qualified to do this. And so the irony here is that shepherds with no name given were here to, to hear the announcement of the coming of the chief shepherd whose name would be above every name. Every name. Again, normally the birth of a prince would be announced to kings and other dignitaries, but this princely announcement was given to the lowly shepherds, not to priests, not to rulers, not to kings, not to Pharisees, nor scribes, not to the great men of Israel, but common shepherds. And I think God's still doing the exact same thing today. I truly believe He's still operating in this way. That those who are boastful, that those who think highly of themselves, that those who think they are without sin, that those who, who see no need for forgiveness, that those who continue to live life and operate it in the way of, I'm going to do this my own way, I don't need God. They don't see any brokenness about their, their condition. They don't see any fallenness about their soul. They don't see any sin within their life. Again, without them coming to that understanding, I'm not saying God's not for them. I'm just saying God is proclaiming and breathing life of the gospel into those who come to an understanding that I am a sinner. Yeah, I did mess up. I am the lowest of the lows. That I, I have not done anything that has merited God's favor in my life. That I have just made a, a, a wreck and a mess of anything and everything that I touch. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. This reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Like I think that is one of the most profound things that we can draw and glean from the story and narrative of Jesus' birth is that 
Again, we would not write this story this way. Maybe you would now that you're a Christian and you have a gospel understanding. But again, even as a Christian, whether you're a business owner or whether you're putting your kids into schools or whether you're uh, looking at the friends that they hang out with or whatever, it lo- I mean, when it comes down to sports teams, like, we still go for the best of the best, right? Like, it's just, it's just how we operate. We look for the best of the best, and that's what we want to invest in. That's what we're going to give our time over to. We don't think about it in what Tim Keller says is kingdom economics. Kingdom economics is what God uses where he takes something that is not going to work and he makes it work to exercise his strength. And so this is why Paul then goes on to kind of boast in his weaknesses because he says, for when I am weak, then I am actually strong because where I am weak and failing, God comes in with his strength and his ability and he elevates my weaknesses with his strength so that I can then execute whatever it is that God has called me to execute. And so this is why it's so important for us First and foremost, not to neglect our weaknesses and failures. We do not need to sweep them under the rug. Actually bringing those things to light gives God the opportunity to use those weaknesses to then execute His plan and provide His strength and the Holy Spirit to come in and actually grant you the ability to be the person that God has designed you to be. Like you can't study your way into sanctification. And that's hard for me to say because you know we value knowledge. I mean, that's one of our biggest values in this church is truth and knowledge. And I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that you, you can't get there without it. You need it, all right? Like the heart cannot feel what the mind does not know. That's important. But you cannot study your way into being Christ-like. The Holy Spirit has to come in and do that. And that's why actually when you study rightly, what it should produce in you is humility because the more you study, the more you realize the chasm between you and Jesus. Like when, when we study Christ, and we dive in and we invest and we abide in Christ on a daily basis. It's going to do two things. And these two things are necessary. One thing that it's going to do is the more you stand next to perfection, what's that going to reveal about you? You can respond. The more you stand next to perfection is going to reveal your, your failures, your imperfections. And that's good. That's good, because in this scenario, ignorance is not bliss. We don't want you just to continue on in your failures and in your mess-ups and in your sin. So the more we see Jesus through His truth, through His Word, the more we see Christ and His perfection, the more it reveals our imperfections and the need of a Savior, the need of Jesus to come into our lives. And that's good news for us because once we then see them and are aware of them, we can confess them. We can come to Father. We can run to Father. Like I've seen on on, um, a a couple of pastors 
put this out on maybe Instagram or Facebook this last week, but there's a difference between religion and Christianity. And, and, and truly, I'm, I'm meaning those in their truest forms. Religion says, when I messed up, God or my father is going to kill me. Like, that's religion. If I mess up, my father's going to kill me. Where the truest form of Christianity, Christ-following Christianity, is I've messed up, I need to call my dad. I need to call my dad. Because as I'm standing next to Jesus and I'm seeing my imperfections, I'm seeing my mess up, I know that because of Jesus Christ at the cross, I am now free to run to my Father when I've messed up because He has told me and assured me that you are forgiven and that you're free from your sin and that you're free from your imperfections and that you're actually free to say no to those imperfections and no to that sin and begin following and trusting me that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you is literally each day as we grow in His truth and as we abide in Jesus through prayer and His Word that He is transforming us from one degree of glory to the next that we are essentially getting better. And the only way that we know that, the only way that we get there is seeing that we need to get better, that we need to progress. And I am 100% operating under the belief that 10 years from now, I will actually probably think of myself worse then than I do now. And the only reason is because I hope that 10 years from now, I know Jesus deeper and more intimately than I do today. Because the more I see him, the more I truly see me. But there's grace and mercy there. And it doesn't terrify me to say that. Because again, I know that every moment along the way, when I see my imperfections and when I see my failures, I'm able, just like these shepherds, to then not fear and to then be, be able to then turn myself over to this exceedingly uh, joy and praise and worship. Because no longer is it about my story of being an outcast or a sinner, but it's about the story of Jesus. It's fixing my eyes on Jesus and not myself. And so it's a two-sided coin. You need to see yourself. But you do not need to see yourself alone. You need to see yourself in light with the gospel so that on the flip side of it, you're seeing the Father looking at you and saying, I am pleased. I'm pleased with you because I know my son Jesus resides in you. He resides in you. It's actually what I love to see Jesus pray in John chapter 17, verse 17. Again, Jesus, this is... This is Fast forwarding, all right? So he's been born. This is the end of his life. This is the prayer before he is going to the cross. This is Jesus at his heart praying for you. And this is what he says. Knowing that we need a Savior. Knowing that we are sinners. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus praying to the Father that He would transform us to become more and more like Jesus. Verse 26. I've made known to them your name. 
and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Two things that Jesus is praying for here. I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. What do we need? This is, this is why we say, like, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself daily, and you need to preach the gospel to your neighbor daily. Because that, again, what did I say at the very beginning? Jesus saying, I will make known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known. What does he do next? Hey, disciples, come here. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go into all the world and you're going to testify on my behalf. The way in which I'm going to make my name known to them, the way in which I'm going to proclaim God to everyone is through you. So if it stops with you, then it stops. I need you to go and do this. This is the plan that we have. The plan has always been you to proclaim the name of God. And as it is being proclaimed, He is sanctifying us. And what we can glean from Him sanctifying us is this right here. How much do you think the Father loves Jesus Christ? Like, let's just ponder that for a second. How much does the Father love His Son? And Jesus praying for us, the love with which you have loved me, he's praying that that love would then be in us. And how does, how does he make that happen? By him saying, I in them. I in them. That's the whole purpose of the birth the incarnation of Jesus coming into the world is meant for the incarnation of Jesus coming into us. That's the whole purpose. That's the only way any of this works is if Jesus gets inside of us. You want to be seen as perfect? Jesus needs to get inside of you. That's the only way you're going to be seen as perfect. You want your sins forgiven? Jesus inside of you. You want to be able, when you mess up, to have free access to run to the Father? Jesus inside of you. The incarnation into the world is not just this miraculous Jesus leaving heaven on a one-way ticket to earth. Like that's not the, 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 the virgin birth is not the, the, the miracle of Christianity. It's just a means. It's a means of getting Jesus to this earth so that as he becomes a human, and this is in that kind of hypostatic union, he's 100% God, he's 100% man, as he becomes a human, he then goes to the cross to die so that you and I don't have to die. Going back to, I've messed up, my father's going to kill me, that is the case for the wages of sin is death. And yes, He will kill us in regards to our sin if we don't believe and trust in the fact that Jesus Christ goes and becomes our substitute on the cross. So that when we trust in that and that becomes our identity, Jesus in us, 
then we are able to run to the Father because we have access. We're in relationship with the Father now. This is where if you really want to dive deeper into it, go to, as he kind of fleshes this out, John 17, 17 follows right after you get the three chapters of John 14, 15, and 16, which are all about the union between us and Jesus, abiding in Jesus Christ, and how that actually fleshes itself out and, and, and functions. And so it's good news for us today to consider ourselves the lowest of the low. That's good news. Because that's who God's pursuing. That's who he's pursuing. So if there, this should be a pride killer. It should be. So my hope for us, whether we're listening online or whether we're here in person, is that whatever pride is in you, it's similar to last week. It's one of those adversaries of the joy that is to be had in this season. If there's pride in you right now that is saying, I can do these things without God, then I just pray that you just kill it. Kill it. Nail it to the cross on Jesus Christ because he's already paid for it. Confess it to him and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not as awesome as I think I am. I'm not as eloquent as I think I am. I'm not as smart as I think I am. I'm not the, the, the greatest husband as I think I am. I'm not the greatest father or mother that I think I am. I'm not, I'm not Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news. Because as we saw there in 1 Corinthians 26, or 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We're not boasting in the presence of God about ourselves. We're boasting in the presence of God about His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what this season's about. We're boasting in Him. Let's get after Him as we continue walking through this season and seeing that this baby, I mean, do you know what a manger is? Again, this is why I, I, I sometimes struggle with nativity scenes is because they make it look way nicer than it is. Like, just like we know that Jesus adult does not have the flowing feathered hair that the pictures depict nor is he white. But we also know that this manger scene, a manger is a feeding trough. It's a feeding trough. And if you're not from a rural USA, like where I'm from, like it's nasty. I mean, like I worked on a dairy farm for a little while that had all kinds of cattle that would come through and the feeding troughs, you didn't know what was food and what was the other end. It's nasty. But yet that's where God seemed fit for his son to be born. I love that. I love that. It was not a mistake. It was not a mistake. Like God the Father up in heaven is not looking at the Holy Spirit thinking, hey, you were in charge of the lodging situation. Did you mess this up? 
And the Holy Spirit's not like, you know, coming back at the Father saying, I was the one doing the conceiving part over here. Like, okay, I was taking that on. You were the one doing the lodging. This is your plan. Like, that's not, no, no, no. What we're going to see next week is the fact that God even brings astrology into the story down to the specific location of this manger because it was his plan all along. It's okay to be low. It's okay to be humble. It's good to be in that because it's in those places when God takes something that is weak and he exerts his strength into it for him to get all the glory. And that's what we want in this season is for him to get all the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to open up your word and to see this, this event that you, that you willed and that you created and that you designed to happen over 2,000 years ago for your son Jesus to come and be born in some of the most um, unusual ways in which we would have imagined. And so, Father, we, we thank you that you have brought about the agents of, of a Savior, the agents of your story. We can learn from Mary and Joseph. We can learn from these shepherds. And I pray that we would have the same humility as them, that when you call on us, we respond. We respond. We respond in faith with assurance of a hope that is guaranteed. And so we thank you, Lord. We pray that Jesus continues to be our greatest treasure in this season, our greatest gift that there is no other gift that's going to provide the satisfaction we're longing for right now. It's Jesus. He's sufficient for us. We don't need anything else. And I would dare say in Jesus, because we have all that we need, we're actually then free to give all that we have without expecting anything in return. And so not only let this be a season where we're focusing on Jesus, but let this be a season of generosity where we pour ourselves out to the interest of others and the needs of others. Because we don't need anything. We have Jesus. So we thank you, Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at